Chapter 6 Other Preparations for Death Quotation by Chagda Tulku Rinpoche, Tibetan Buddhist Tradition People often make the mistake of being frivolous about death and think, Oh, well, death happens to everybody. It's not a big deal. It's natural. I'll be fine. That's a nice theory until one is dying. Choosing a Spiritual Guide Just as a midwife can help a woman in the process of giving birth, so a spiritual guide can help you navigate through the difficult process of dying. If your spiritual teacher is able to be with you in person at the hour of your death, then he or she is the obvious choice for the role. If not, ask a family member or friend to serve you in this capacity. The person you choose to be your guide should be someone whose spiritual wisdom you respect, who can assist you with your practices, and in whom you can confide when fears and doubts arise. Most importantly, he or she should know something about the stages of death outlined in this book and be available to act as your bedside coach during your actual passage through death's gate. This is important because if you become lost in altered states or frightened by visions, your guide can remind you of where you are and reassure you as to the illusory nature of these experiences. He or she can also answer questions about what's happening to you, read from appropriate spiritual texts, and prompt you to maintain your death practice as you enter the final stages. After physical death has occurred, your spiritual guide should remain with your body for at least 20 minutes, gently instructing you to be attentive to the various mental appearances which will manifest, and to identify with consciousness without an object when it appears. Once you have chosen a spiritual guide, be sure to introduce him or her to your family and friends. Let them know that you intend to die in a spiritual manner and inform them of the role your guide will play at the hour of your death. If they are not thoroughly apprised of the situation, some members of your family may become disturbed by your guide's presence. This can cause unnecessary tensions and quarreling at a time when an atmosphere of harmony and tranquility will be all-important. Choosing a Practical Affairs Coordinator it is vital that you, as a spiritual seeker, set aside time to engage in spiritual practices or simply to be alone with God. For most people, this will not be too much of a problem. However, if you have a lot of unfinished business to take care of, or a large family and many friends who want to visit you, setting aside time for yourself may become quite difficult. If you find yourself in this situation, then in addition to a spiritual guide, you may also want to ask a trusted family member or friend to act as a kind of practical affairs coordinator, someone who can help you pay bills, buy groceries, make doctor appointments, have prescriptions filled, arrange to get you legal documents, tell friends when you are and are not available for visits, and play host to them when they do stop by. In short, a practical affairs coordinator should be a combination business manager and social secretary. Some people, particularly those who have prided themselves on being independent most of their lives, may feel guilty about asking someone else to shoulder such responsibilities. If this is true of you, then whether or not you have an official practical affairs coordinator, 
Allowing others to tend to your needs will give you a good opportunity to practice the virtue of humility. A large part of self-surrender involves giving up our attachment to the illusion that we are, or ever have been, truly autonomous beings. From the beginning, our bodily existence has depended utterly on the sacrifice of others, whether these others were our parents who raised and supported us as children, the plants and animals that have sacrificed themselves so that we could live, or even the oxygen in the atmosphere which has given itself freely for us to breathe. Indeed, no one stands alone, for the very boundaries that we imagine separate us from each other and the world are also what bind us together into that single vast tapestry of consciousness in form. Consequently, the more you can acknowledge how much your bodily existence depends on others now, the easier it will be for you to relinquish this existence when the moment of death comes. Moreover, in allowing others to serve you, you will also be serving them in at least two ways. First, you will be providing them with a precious opportunity to practice charity and compassion. This is a highly personal gift which those who care for you will remember and cherish for the rest of their lives. Second, as someone who is dying, you will be acting as a mirror in which they can contemplate their own mortality and the necessity for deepening their own spiritual practice while there is still time. To inspire someone to spiritual practice is perhaps the greatest service one human being can perform for another. Reconciliation and Restitution It is important to die with a clear conscience. Start by making a list of those people you have harmed or mistreated or who have harmed or mistreated you. Do not try to remember every little incident. Make a single but heartfelt prayer asking forgiveness for all minor offenses you have committed and forgiving those who have committed minor offenses against you. Confine your list to those people whom you have harmed or injured in a major way and vice versa. If some of these people are still alive, you should try to contact them personally or write a letter expressing sorrow for any grief you have caused them and forgiving them for whatever grief they have caused you. If you have actually stolen from someone or cheated them out of what was rightfully theirs and can make restitution, it will be of great spiritual benefit to do so. Provisions for such restitution, for instance, can be incorporated into your will. If you cannot afford to make restitution, you should still confess your offense and ask their forgiveness. If you have lost touch with any of the people on your list, or they have already died, you can still ask for and confer forgiveness by means of meditative prayer. Recall to mind each offense as vividly as possible, along with whatever painful feelings of remorse or resentment it arouses. Notice that both remorse and resentment feel painful because the energy of these feelings is directed toward yourself. By redirecting this energy outward, you can transform remorse into repentance or resentment into forgiveness as the situation requires. Once you have done this, release the memory of what happened and do not dwell on it again. Self-pity and obsessive guilt are never signs of true selflessness. If you find yourself wallowing in these kinds of emotions, again notice that they all revolve around an image of your self.
Let go of this image and allow the feelings associated with it to dissolve. Then turn your attention to the present and whatever tasks are at hand. Last Will and Testament From a spiritual perspective, no one actually owns anything. Although the concept of ownership is socially and legally necessary, in reality it is a fiction. As a spiritual practitioner, in order not to be deluded in this regard, you have tried to view all your material possessions as being on loan to you from the divine, which in turn means that you have also had a responsibility to use them wisely and compassionately. This includes taking responsibility for their disposal at the time of your death. The traditional way to dispose of possessions at the time of death is to leave a last will and testament. If you have not already done so, you should have one drawn up as soon as possible. It is important, however, to remember that the laws which govern such documents vary from state to state and country to country. For example, they may have to be written in a certain format, be signed by a certain number of witnesses, or be notarized by a notary public in order to be legally binding. Thus, a simple handwritten note is not likely to suffice in a court of law. To be sure that your last will and testament is legal, consult a lawyer. If you cannot afford one, at least find out what the laws are pertaining to these documents in your jurisdiction. You should also be aware that in some situations it may be advisable to make other arrangements, such as establishing survivorship title to your property or setting up trusts. In order to determine which is best for you, consult a professional financial advisor or lawyer. In addition to fulfilling your responsibilities regarding possessions, taking an active interest in their disposal will also give you an opportunity to practice detachment from them. Thus, even if you have already drawn up a last will and testament or made other arrangements, you should take the time to mentally review all the things you own, say a prayer expressing your gratitude for the way in which each has served you during this life, and then make a conscious decision to relinquish it forever. By so doing, you will prepare yourself to leave this world in the same condition in which you entered it, naked and free of all things. Documents Pertaining to Your Health Care If your ability to make decisions about your own medical treatment becomes impaired, as for instance if you fall into a coma, it is usually the policy of doctors and other health care professionals, in the United States at least, to make every effort to keep you alive for as long as possible, even if there is virtually no chance of your condition ever improving. If you do not wish such aggressive and often costly measures to be taken on your behalf, it is not enough to simply communicate this verbally to family members or friends. Because doctors and other health care professionals can be held liable for failing to keep you alive, they may have no choice but to disregard whatever your family and friends say unless it is backed up by written documentation. For this reason, it is important to draw up a living will and or power of attorney for health care, as well as to ask your doctor to issue a Do Not Resuscitate Order, DNR, to be given to all your health care providers. A living will gives specific instructions about what kinds of treatment you wish withheld when death becomes imminent. 
By signing a power of attorney for health care, you legally empower a relative or friend to make these decisions for you should you become incapacitated. A DNR must be signed by your doctor. It informs nurses, ambulance paramedics, and other physicians that you do not wish to be resuscitated when your life signs begin to fail. Because not all states recognize such documents as legally binding, you must again find out what the laws are in your area. Moreover, as with last wills and testaments, documents relating to your health care usually have to be drawn up in a specified manner to carry legal weight. In states which do recognize the legality of such documents, standardized forms can often be obtained from your doctor's office, an area hospital, a hospice organization, or your local library. Filling them out is a relatively simple matter and well worth the effort, both for your own sake and the sake of your relatives and friends who will be trying to see that your wishes are honored. Dying at Home until the turn of the 20th century, the vast majority of human beings died at home, in their own beds, surrounded by family and friends. In many places in the world, they still do, but not in the United States. In the United States today, most people die in hospitals or nursing homes. This has come about partly because it is assumed that such institutions can provide better care for the dying person. With the advent of the hospice movement in recent years, however, the advantages of dying at home versus dying in an institution have been undergoing a radical re-evaluation. Aside from questions about death with dignity and the quality of emotional support that family and friends can provide in a home environment, as opposed to the more technologically advanced but less personal care available in a hospital, there are good spiritual reasons for choosing to die at home. One, there is little doubt that, all else being equal, dying at home will provide a better environment for engaging in your spiritual practices. Instead of having to follow a hospital's routine, for example, you will have more freedom to set up your own daily schedule, thus allowing for more periods of uninterrupted meditation, reading, reflection, and prayer. 2. Most people find it easier to relax at home with their own families than in a hospital run by a professional staff, no matter how sensitive the staff tries to be. This is usually true not only for the dying person, but also for friends and loved ones who come to visit. Thus, the surroundings in a home are usually more tranquil than in an institution, and as a spiritual practitioner, you will certainly want to die in as tranquil an environment as possible. This is because the more tranquil your environment, the more peaceful will be your own frame of mind, and the easier it will be to concentrate on your spiritual practices when the hour of your death arrives. 3. By dying at home you will also give your family and friends a greater opportunity to experience the reality of death and to understand that it is the inevitable end of all embodied life. This will not only help them come to terms with their own mortality, but seeing you die in a spiritual manner may inspire them to strive to do the same. The decision to die at home, however, should not be made lightly. Although it is not usually the case, the nature of your illness may be such that adequate management of pain and other symptoms is not feasible outside of a hospital setting. This is something you should discuss with your doctor. 
you must also take into consideration how your family and friends feel. Caring for you will require a heavy expenditure of time and energy which they may not be able to afford. Equally important, they must have a genuine desire to be participants in your death. If they consent to your wishes merely out of a sense of duty, you could well find the situation at home becoming far more stressful than it would have been in a hospital. Thus, you must not only try to get them to be honest with you, you must be both honest and compassionate in your assessment of them. Some people in our society have been so sheltered from death that they simply aren't emotionally prepared to cope with the sight of someone they love dying before their very eyes. If, on the other hand, it is medically feasible and you have the support of your family and friends, then dying at home may be easier than you might at first think. This is especially true if there is a hospice in your area. Most hospice organizations are staffed by trained personnel who are emotionally and spiritually committed to making dying at home a viable option in our society once again. Often they can provide a wide range of medical and social home care services for both you and your family, including help with such things as the administration of medication, psychological counseling, arranging for a death certificate, planning funeral services, etc. Moreover, hospice costs are covered by Medicare, most health insurance plans, and private donations, so that lack of money is never an obstacle to receiving their assistance. Therefore, if dying at home seems the right choice for you, seeking help from a hospice organization should be one of your top priorities. Pain and Pain Management Depending on the type of illness you have, death may be accompanied by a considerable amount of physical pain. This pain can usually be controlled by a variety of pain-killing drugs. However, Many of these drugs also produce states of drowsiness, confusion, and sleep, all of which may interfere with your ability to engage in spiritual practice. Because, as a spiritual practitioner, you want to die in as lucid a mental state as possible, you might be tempted to abstain from all pain medication. But if the pain itself becomes so excruciating that you can no longer focus on your practice, then there will be little to gain by such abstinence. In addition, again depending on your illness, chemical changes naturally occurring in your body may produce drowsiness, confusion, and sleep, even if no medication is taken. Thus, mere abstention from drugs will not necessarily guarantee the lucidity you desire. There are two things you can do to ameliorate this problem. The first is to use pain medication with discretion, trying to establish a happy medium between physical comfort and mental clarity. The second is to rehearse your death practice whenever you take a nap or go to sleep at night. With sufficient practice, you can actually learn to meditate or pray in any state of consciousness, even while dreaming. The more you can develop this ability now, the easier it will be to maintain lucidity in the hour of your death, no matter what chemical alterations take place in your body or how much pain medication you have to take. Planning for the Hour of Your Death There are many occasions in life for which we plan in great detail. Births, initiations, graduations, weddings, even dinner parties— 
but rarely in our modern culture do we make the same kind of preparations for our deaths, and yet there is no more important or sacramental event. One reason that we give so little thought to our deaths is that we are not always granted the opportunity to anticipate it. You, however, have such an opportunity, and you should make the most of it. Here are a few of the things to consider about the kind of environment you may want to establish as you make your final passage through death's gate, especially if you intend to die at home. 1. Would you like to have an open house with as many of your friends and relatives present as can make it? Or would you rather just invite members of your immediate family? Perhaps again you would prefer to be alone with only your spiritual guide in attendance. 2. Do you want any spiritual texts read as death approaches? If so, which ones and in what order? 3. Would you like music played? If so, what pieces? 4. Do you want any representations of your favorite spiritual teachers placed where you can see them, say a picture or statue of Kuan Yin or the Buddha, Mirabai or Christ? Even if you are not sure how you will feel about such accessories when death comes, you should still ask your spiritual guide in advance to have them available. That way you can avoid any last-minute confusion or frantic searching about for the desired items. The more you plan now, the more the outward course of your death will proceed smoothly, and the less there will be to distract you from your inner practice. Disposing of Your Body from a spiritual point of view, your body, like your material possessions, does not ultimately belong to you, but is only held on loan to be used as wisely and compassionately as possible during this life. Thus, just as it is important to make arrangements for the disposal of your material possessions, so it is important to make known your wishes for the disposal of your body after your death. In this regard, there are two major things to consider, viewing of your corpse and its final disposal. Viewing of your corpse It will be of great spiritual benefit for others to have a chance to view your corpse after you are dead, not only in order to say a last farewell, but more importantly, to be able to contemplate the impermanence of all bodily existence. To this end, you should request that your body be placed on display somewhere accessible to your family, friends, and fellow practitioners from one to three days. In some states there are legal restraints on how long a cadaver can be left unburied without embalming or refrigeration, so check the laws in your area. Your corpse should not be dressed up beyond the requirements of modesty, nor should any cosmetic attempts be made to disguise the fact that you are quite dead and even beginning to decay. Otherwise, the spiritual purpose of the viewing will be undermined. Final Disposal The two most common methods for disposing of corpses are burial and cremation. As to which is best, there is no consensus in the great traditions. Indeed, from an absolute perspective, it makes little difference, since your body has no reality in its own right, but is merely a transient manifestation of consciousness itself. 
The one thing you should specifically avoid, however, is any method of burial designed to preserve your body indefinitely, as, for instance, interment in a stainless steel casket. Remember that you yourself have been able to live only through the sacrifice of other life forms. Since you have feasted on their bodies all these years, it would be both uncharitable and unjust to now deprive them of the opportunity to feast on your body, whether this be directly through offering your flesh as a banquet for worms and bacteria, or indirectly by recycling it as bones and ashes that will fertilize the soil. THE FUNERAL SERVICE The funeral service fulfills many functions, most of which are social in nature. Thus, it is at once a rite that publicly confirms your death, an occasion for communal grieving, and a ceremony of closure for loved ones who must carry on without you. But it also provides an opportunity for others to assess the way you lived and to learn what they can from it. If you wish to participate in this assessment by communicating whatever insights you have gained from life, you can do so in a variety of ways. You might, for example, ask that a favorite passage from a spiritual text, an essay, or a poem be read at the service, or you might write one yourself. You might also request that a certain piece of music be played, a song sung, or that your spiritual teacher say a few words on your behalf. Keep in mind, however, that the funeral service will not be held primarily for your benefit, but for the benefit of your family and friends. In talking it over with them, be attentive to their needs and considerate of their wishes.